Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Reinsurance Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jared Lee. And I'm Ben Rose. Good to see you as always. Likewise. And what special episode do we have ahead of us today, Jared? Today is our second Q&A episode. Dun, so, dun, dun. Dun, dun. so we get emails, we get people dropping us things on LinkedIn, we get lots of random questions that sort of filter through to us. So we try to use these every once in a while to sort of distill those down um, and, and answer the questions that the people need to know. And you don't mean the questions like, would you like to outsource your development? <laughs> would you like to boost sales by 1,000% with do you, our... Do you want our LinkedIn ad campaign to help you? <laughs> no, no. No, but... send those emails to spam and focus on Cordy's <laughs> filtered list of... Yeah, our curated list of questions that we actually want to answer. <laughs> and some that we probably don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We shall see. Cordy do love a curveball. <laughs> he does love a curveball. Ooh, American baseball analogy. I like it. All right. Question number one to Ben. Ooh. Who was your favorite broker when you were an underwriter and why? Oh, that's a weird question. As a I, firm maybe or as an individual or as a... I don't know. I'm trying to think about this now. I didn't like any of them. <laughs> I, well, no, it's interesting because you had this environment where I think every it was a very matey industry in one where everybody wanted to be your best friend, mm. especially if you were... <laughs> as an underwriter that was known for being easily persuaded to give away its capacity. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> we, I, I think, you know, as, as, another ten percent. <laughs> as well, well, I think as a relatively new startup reinsurer, as we were at the time, you know, we were not in the position of putting down lead twenty five percent lines on the most established programs. We were much more of a where can we prudently take a a smallish share on fairly new programs each time, right? Mm. So. I most of the brokers that would come to us would would either be we'd be trying to persuade them to let us on the established programs or on the programs that other people didn't necessarily want to be on. Yeah, yeah. We were trying to carefully loss pick and, and choose our participations on which layers we thought were going to blow up or not. I so I think probably the thing that made certain brokers more favorable than others was authenticity. Mm -hmm. I you did have some brokers where you could feel the sale and you then heard them give exactly the same pitch, you know, mm. the next box down and say tell exactly the same story and put the same sort of fake grin on and so on. Yeah. Whereas I think you you had a a lot more interesting relationships and conversations with people that you felt were not trying. Yeah. You know, and were just willing to come along and be vulnerable and talk about their lives and, you know, had lots of really deep and, and interesting conversations uh, with a lot of the independent brokers actually as well who I think had had built their their own books of business on that kind of trust mm -hmm. that comes with vulnerability where, you know, they'd be as much coming to the box to talk to you about something tough that happened to them as they would to tell you how brilliant their business was and why yeah. they were such a good broker. And of course, everything was perfect. Yeah, uh, They'd be much more willing to tell you the hard news uh, and the bad things about a client as mm -hmm. they were the good things, which implicitly made you trust them a lot more. Yeah. So makes sense. Yeah. Favored, favored the, uh, the brokers that were, authentic so that's the tip for all the aspiring and emerging brokers who are listeners i can't say if it translates to better results <laughs> <laughs> um jess asks um ben and jared are both keen runners who would likely win in a half marathon or livy i think livy might be his boat <laughs> um well i mean it depends right because jared is is an incredibly a generous and patient coach so so he runs with you 
for a half marathon. So we did one in Cologne, which was, yeah, I think my personal best years ago as yeah, part of yeah. running tourism. Um, and that was hilarious because Jared sort of ran with me the whole way through. At, like, I think I did my fastest ever 10K within that half. Yeah, yeah. We were plowing through, overtaking everyone. And then Jared kept pushing at the end um, to try and get me to go faster, to go faster yeah. so we could break a new record. And if I tripped him up in that last bit and then just <laughs> legged it, I would have beaten him because he was being sufficient, yeah. but I did not do so. So that that was that's a trip for another day as well because we we got stranded. Remember our our train got canceled yeah. and we we had to spend a night in Brussels. Um, and went to Cologne very late the the day before the race. This is how you know strong start startup founder relationships. Yeah, ex exactly. Being, being stranded for a long night out in in Brussels. Yeah, um, I think I have the better PB at the moment, but I'm I'm not getting any faster. So we'll see. We'll see how long that stands. You think, you think <laughs> yeah, quite exactly. substantially so, an un unassailably high or low, I should say, personal best, I guess. Um, uh, to me, uh, what was your favorite, um, most and least favorite part of being a broker? Um. I think there's a, a we talked about the the day in the life of a broker a few episodes ago um and there's a huge amount of things that are really enjoyable like working with clients around solving complex structures and, and helping them sort out what they want to buy and help them sort of plan for business problems that they're trying to solve so all of that work was always really really interesting um the relationship building with underwriters and that's always enjoyable as well um but wasn't my wasn't something that i really really enjoyed as much um there's certainly the sort of tedium of tracking the details of placements and stuff when you have your spreadsheet with all the different columns for your different layers and you're trying to keep track of who's seen what and what signings have come back and updating emails like there's a lot of um sort of tedious parts of the process that get involved but that didn't feel like there was a way to get away from that at the time. Like part of the things that we're doing at Superseed is is solving for all of those things to to make those go away. Because if you can if you can remove some of those pain points, like the whole job is much much more enjoyable, and you can lean into the things that are the most uh, most fun and the most interesting. Um, that's kind of how I would how I would position my experience there. I think certain people really really love like long business trips and relationship building and long nights out and all this kind of stuff, um, hit and miss for me. Um, but, uh, and then you have other people who really like getting into the deep analytics. You have the actuaries who work on the broken teams and this kind of stuff. So there's a bit of a, a bit of something for everybody in that role. So, um, it's, it's, again, you know, a role I'd certainly recommend to, to our listeners who want to get into broking. Um, how is the reinsurance industry funded? Ooh, good question. I guess two main ways. So there's, you have companies which are established. I said like a established, <laughs> and b established exactly, which are established, I or established one day. <laughs> I, we have companies which are established specifically for the purpose of underwriting reinsurance business. I, in which case they are effectively leveraging their own shareholders funds their own balance sheet as their capital so i as a company they're staking their own worth as a company uh, and their own sort of piles and piles of claims reserves as their way of potentially paying claims should they need to be funded to which extent you could say that that part of the industry 
uh, is effectively funded by the shareholders of those companies. Uh, when, whenever those companies have raised capital or whether those companies have organically grown and grown as many have over decades, in some cases centuries, to build up a bigger and bigger pile of capital that they can use. Um, the other half uh, of how the reinsurance industry is funded is, is where you have investors who could be external or kind of internal to the industry really who deliberately expose specific uh, portions of their capital to the industry in the hope of getting a better return or a less uh, correlated return uh, from exposure to insurance risks uh, than they would get elsewhere. Uh, so this tends to come in the forms of various insurance-linked securities, uh, collateralized reinsurance as well, where effectively they find some kind of special purpose vehicle where they can lock up a bunch of their capital and say, here it is, here is our money in case a, a claim happens. Uh, if a claim doesn't happen or not too many claims happen, then we get all of that money back from the special purpose vehicle, plus also uh, a, a, a premium effectively or, or some kind of payment uh, for saying thank you very much for putting your <laughs> your money there just in case for these last year or several years. Uh, so those are the, the kind of the two main sources. I don't know, Jared, if you'd add anything to that. Um, I think that covers off how reinsurers get funded. The, in the reinsurance industry, you have obviously the brokers, mostly more independent or PE kind of driving broker growth. Um, Berkshire Hathaway could be a, a sweeping. How's it funded? Yeah. Warren Buffett, I don't know. Um, but there was actually, and we missed it in our news roundup. But he just increased his exposure to Markel. Mm. Um, so there's like, there's certain players who are huge investors across the space. Who, I mean, that's a really good example of the the equity one, right? In some ways, mm. because they, I mean, as well as playing in reinsurance in all sorts of different capital ways, quite literally, that was an insurance company that got built up because of the size of a more general conglomerates kind of uh, balance sheet size, right? Yeah. It's like, oh, we could do insurance because everyone knows we've got loads of money. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and we'll pay claims with our loads of money. So yeah. you can see how this kind of happens. Yeah. Um, and then weirdly, there might be another one that similar to how insurance companies can use reinsurance as capital, you could make a claim that reinsurance is also funded to some degree by retro. They're able to offload a bit of their exposure and use the capacity made available to them on a retro basis to write more. So you could you could also maybe make that extension, although maybe a bit less clearly, but you could see it in a similar way of allowing them to pay their bills and things like that. Um, what are the most significant developments the reinsurance industry has seen in the past five to 10 years, if any? Well, in 2019, a loan uh, group of reinsurance and technology people got together. They sound created, awesome already. They do sound awesome, don't they? <laughs> and stood against the, the tyranny of a lack of technology in, in the insurance industry. I, though the chat task was large, they were not without supporters, and the fellowship of this group was was supported by... I'm going to carry this on for a while, but why not? Forged. <laughs> was forged. Was forged with, with investment and sponsorship and, and people getting involved and saying, you go do it, you take the ring to Mordor and bring this... <laughs> this uh, industry to a better place um, and and that company now is called Superseed and you should probably go to our website and find out what we do if you want to know what the most exciting yeah. innovation to affect reinsurance over the last five years was. You can also find the podcast on the, the superseed.com website. So. I mean I presume they've, they found that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah I think that um, besides us obviously um, last five to ten years, I think there continues to be innovation around how deals get structured, program task types, all those kind of things. Um, 
but yeah, it's purely from a technology point of view. Um, there's been a bit of a push, I think, firms like what we were kind of there's there's a bunch of stuff that's been non non touched not touched by technology um, in its history, and I think we're starting to really press in against some of that. If if I was going to comment on non technology innovation, I would say sort of supply chain dislocation and the ability to disconnect capital from underwriting and distribution has probably been one of the coolest innovations we've seen. Mm -hmm. So getting away from this idea that if you want capital, you must get it from the same place that you get your distribution and underwriting, actually seeing all sorts of vehicles rise, not just in exceptions, but to prominence as means of achieving distribution and underwriting, such as MGAs that write reinsurance. Mm -hmm. I like Cordery in London, for example, and, and various others where they don't actually do the capital part. They've got external capital providers. I, and then established reinsurers trying out other things where they're actually not on risk or only partially on risk and outsourcing uh, a lot of the capital for fee-based returns instead of underwriting-driven returns. That's mm -hmm. very exciting as well when you start to, to change your mindset of how does a reinsurer make money, yeah. which was traditionally, you know, Combined ratio plus investment returns is now combined ratio plus investment returns plus fee income plus commission for passing on business elsewhere, yeah. plus yeah all sorts of things it can really start to change uh, our idea of what a reinsurance company needs. I th I think we could have and maybe we will have a whole podcast just on that because it also touches we we talked about in the episode of Paula and a couple episodes ago about the the risk if you can't make the economic model work people just leave and people and, and there's a risk of that happening and and you've outlined a number of ways that there's this diversification at play even within a firm that says it's not just about how well we underwrite risk and balance that off with premium we take in but there's all these other avenues by which we can make money to build the business even if the sort of sort of underlying results aren't as effective as we may have wanted um last question as we run out of time here if we could go back to the beginnings of supersede would we do anything differently? Ooh, I think a good question. It I mean, is like probably loads of things, right? But not, not, uh, <laughs> not in such a way that we'd know that they would change the outputs. That's that's the thing, yeah. isn't it? You know, I mean, depends how deterministically you want to look at any kind of interaction. Like, yeah. oh, I wish I'd done that. Well, only if I could guarantee that having done that would have had correct Y outcome, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, I think, and I also look at this question, because I've thought about this um, a lot, because as, as founders, I don't, you probably get this as well, but people ask us this kind of question a lot. Hence why it's filtered through our key, into our Q&A list. Um, I always try to frame it in the lens of what I knew at the time. Like, were there things that I was kind of waffling on? I go, oh, I... And, I would have done this differently or I should have done that or we should have discussed this or thought about this other thing differently. Um, so as a result, I'm relatively lenient in, in the criticism um, just to be like, there are certain things that given what I knew at the time, I wouldn't change it. It probably could have been done if we'd some, done, some, done something differently that may have worked out better. But as you said, it's, it's hard to completely take that piece out and go, oh, that was, yeah, but we got all these knock-on benefits Right. You know, it's you can't really say if we'd done that instead, then this would certainly have, have been the outcome. Right. So it's, right. But that, I don't want that to also sound like we're complimenting. 
our way of having done things too much. I think no. we're in a good place and things are yeah, moving yeah. forward nicely and, and I'm, I'm very pleased about that. So yeah, I, I think maybe if we were in a kind of terrible place, we'd be like, no, yeah. if only we'd done something, anything differently <laughs> than that one thing. That Yeah, I, I think why, you... Why did we focus on life and health? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't I, had one of those moments yet where no. we've been like, why? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. I, I think there's always an element of things you would do differently and better. Um, I think people who have founded numerous companies, you know, continue to improve and refine. What do they do differently at the start? What are lessons you learn along the way that say, oh, I would I would definitely do this sooner. I would definitely wait to do that until much, much later. Mm. Um, and I think you are always kind of sort of calibrating in that sense. Um, but it's similar to your to your earlier point. It's It's almost like choosing the degree you studied at university or the which university you went to. It's very easy to go back and go, oh, I should have, chosen the other university but assuming that something that's not where you wanted or thought it might be is the direct result and none of the other benefits in your life have yeah. resulted from not that choice right it's yeah it's too hard to sort of extract something to that big imagine listeners being like oh, i wish i'd studied music like then then i'd be working yeah. in a reinsurance startup <laughs> yeah yeah well and it's like little things you're like had we chosen Azure or AWS, like, I don't know, like some, some of those things, like maybe we pivot to a different platform in some number of years or not, but like, which of those, which of those changes that you would do that are like, might be better when you start and not promoting either. I think we're, we're big AWS fans anyway, but, um, you, you look at it and going, would those things be, make a market difference on marked difference on our trajectory or anything else or not? Like, so I think you make a lot of calibrations, but it would be minor in, in the scheme of things. Indeed. Are, are we out of time? Is there time for Is there one time for final more? one? Are we? Yeah. Okay. The final one, final one with a quick answer, and then we will escape the studio. You're going to trim this out because it's not loading. <laughs> Drum roll, please, whilst we wait for the final question to load, or for Cordy to bring it over manually. Here it is. The one you've all been waiting for. How is reinsurance premium calculated? Oh, nice light one to end on. <laughs> Last question. How is reinsurance premium calculated? So fascinating element of reinsurance pricing calculation is that it tends to be historically at least consensus-based. Uh, so the market tries to arrive at a symmetrical or consistent price across all of the participants on a deal. Not always the case. There is other. There are other options available, like verticalization. But typically, the way that the pricing process works uh, is that you collectively gather quotes from a large number of potential price setters, uh, who we call quoting markets. They all provide different prices, uh, and then the broker is able to determine at what market consensus price is it likely the deal could get placed for the volume that they're trying to achieve. How, that, how those quoting markets actually determine the price mm -hmm. tends to be a balance of what's known of experience rating and exposure rating, experiences like how many losses have happened in the past and how likely are they to, to happen again on that basis. Exposure rating is much more, is the stuff that could go wrong, how much would it cost if it went wrong, and is there any way we can calculate the likelihood of it going wrong, for example, running models over the top of weather scenarios or whatever it might be. Um, but that's broadly how it works in terms of, of pricing. Anything to add, Jerry, on that one? No, I, I think that's that's pretty um, pretty much covers the spectrum of it. I think the piece around 
getting everyone to agreement is really important because these deals are so large and there's this this need where you have firms that are less sophisticated in their buying who benefit from the expertise of lead markets who can kind of say, okay, if that's where the market's going to go and they can diversify their book by following the fortunes of other firms. So I think there's an efficiency that comes from from that consensus-driven model. Um, and the whole, I think you're, you're spot on. That's We can probably have a whole episode on that as well because I think it's an, an, there's a lot of elements to cover, but on the categorical level, I think you've touched it off. Well, I look forward to more special Q&A episodes soon, but it sounds like there's insight in every episode here at the Reinsurance Always. Podcast. And never, never a loss for insight and earworms for you. Indeed. Indeed. Have a good day. See you next time. Thanks.